the Neon Confidential Podcast. Is this thing on? <laughs> Y'all, this is one of my favorite episodes so far. It's going to be so hard to top this one in my opinion. This story is proof that you just simply cannot and should not judge a book by its cover. And in this situation, this is a tale of an attractive powerhouse blonde woman in sports broadcast journalism, one who I would put up against any man in the industry as far as sports knowledge. It is a story of struggle, but moreover, it's a story of triumph and all the obstacles that Amber Theo Harris had to overcome in the face of adversity in a totally male-dominated industry. We talk about important topics like depression, where Amber profiles Olympic gold medalist in her recent documentary, The Weight of Gold. We talk about her postpartum journey when she was in the prime of her career broadcasting for the NFL. We talk about what it's like to be a woman and how empathy, education, and understanding can be applied to so much to bring people together or help people through. We laugh, we cry, we get really, really real. Please welcome Amber Theo Harris to the Neon Confidential Show. Neon Confidential's next guest is an Emmy award-winning journalist, sports maven, and current host of the Raiders Report, the Silver and Black Show, and Raiders Game Day here in fabulous Las Vegas. This powerhouse female is a sports broadcaster who has broken major industry barriers and is known for her work on NFL Network and Fox Sports. She is also a documentary filmmaker and is the recipient of two Associated Press Awards for sports journalism. She has also been recognized in Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and Forbes. Please welcome Amber Theo Harris to the show. Hi. Hi. I'm so glad you could make it here. Great introduction. Thank you. I've always wondered what that's like to like hear your own bio back. It makes you feel old because you realize (laughs) how long ago some of those accomplishments were and some are recent, but it's a long, long bio. Listen, I feel like we can all like feel old, but as long as we don't look old and you definitely don't. Thank you. It's better to look good than to feel good. Exactly. (laughs) That is true. Um, so first of all, I want to say that I love our conversations and I feel like at Caviar Bar, when we were just getting to know each other better, I was like, I have to have her on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so let's start, like, I want to, I, I feel like I want you to walk us back from when you won your Emmy. Like, how did that happen? How did you get there? Take us all the way back from like the beginning. It was a while ago and, you know, I was really young when I won. I've, I've been nominated four times. Well, no, hold on. Holy smokes. Four times and then my film was nominated. Mm -hmm. So like I've been nominated four times as a broadcaster and as a filmmaker, I was nominated once and I won one and it was the first time I was nominated and I was 27 years old and I was like, oh, this business is easy. I am crushing this. Like, you know, you think you're destined for glory. And I can remember older uh, sportscasters we're kind of like, this is so awesome to win so young. You know, I've been nominated 14 times. I've never won. And, and I was like, whatever. Like, you guys just don't, you aren't me. You know, you have that attitude when you're young. And then you realize as the business goes on, like, oh, my gosh, it's really hard to get nominated, let alone win one. And I, I, I have won. I've never won another one. And, and that was... I mean, that was 2007. Wow. Yeah. So did you know, you didn't know it was as big of a deal as it was? Yes, I did not know. Right. Because you're dumb and you're young <laughs> and you think you're a superstar. Like in your brain, you're like, yeah, this is what I set out to do. And I told everybody I was going to do it. And clearly I'm super talented and people are noticing, you know, and then you don't realize it's it's a tough business. It's a long haul. And um, 
people that are lucky enough to to work in it a long time maybe get nominated again if they're lucky but it's not it's not ever a guaranteed and I find that I would do work and be like oh this is definitely going to get nominated and it wouldn't and then something that I was like thought was a throwaway story that I didn't really put my heart into got nominated so you just kind of learn to not care about that like it really doesn't matter to me at all. What matters though, if I if my film got recognized, that would matter more than me getting recognized. So I wanna I guess let's just go straight to the film because I feel like that was when you were talking about it when we were having dinner. I was like, what a cool story. And so I want you to talk about I mean, because I feel like you put a lot of heart into that, right? I did. The the name of the film is The Weight of Gold. You can it's streaming now on HBO Max. Um it was released in 2020 and it's starring Michael Phelps and it was a film, it's a documentary on mental health and Olympic athletes. And I stumbled on the film. I was actually setting out to make another documentary film about this U.S. Olympic bobsledder that has the same eye disease that I have. And um, uh, he wrote a book called But Now I See and it was about like him going blind and not like telling people and wow. he was heading to Vancouver and he was a gold medal favorite. And long story short, while we were, that was a great story within itself. Mm -hmm. um, he, about 12 days after we interviewed him, uh, he took his own life. He died by suicide. Um, and so that was really devastating that we didn't pick up. We knew that he was suffering from depression. It was part of his story. Um, but we didn't know how much in crisis he was at the time we were interviewing him. And of course, as as a creative, as a human, as a filmmaker, you wonder if your interview sparked feelings you know you dig deep into people with interviews that's the point of it and there's just a lot of guilt um, a lot of sadness a lot of regret around that um, but we had this footage of him speaking about depression in, in athletes and so at that time Michael Phelps was starting to really speak out about his experience with depression mm -hmm. and so we reached out to Michael I'm from the Baltimore area he's from there and uh, kind of joined forces and um, it became kind of the snowball of all these other gold medal athletes telling their story. And that's how the weight of gold was born. So it came from, and who was the athlete that had the eye? His name was Stephen Holcomb. Mm -hmm. uh, he passed away in 2017. Wow. And so Stephen's interview was first? So Stephen's interview was first, obviously. And then we interviewed everybody else. But if you watch the film on HBO, um, you don't know you kind of you really relate to this guy you hear this guy steven talking throughout the film and the and it's really powerful i mean i want you guys to watch it i want to give it away but i already told you i mean i already told you that he passed away but by the end you're like oh wow one of these people we got to know throughout the film um died by suicide which is the whole point of raising awareness for this and it's it was really it's it's a heavy film it's not like a light watch but it's really powerful and that was the biggest um pride I had was that I was really proud that a lot of people reached out and said I suffer from this now I feel you know I'm glad that you put these big gladiators up there that we all look up to and showed how vulnerable they are and that you took the stigma away and by starting a discussion so I was really really proud of the film and so I mean what a good tribute to him though that you're bringing awareness after the fact yeah. um and at least for his family I bet. And like you said, for other people who are reaching out afterward and they're like, thank you so much for putting this message out here. And yeah. so, of course, and I want people to go watch it too. What are just like some some 
points that hit on why athletes is it just Olympic athletes that this film is just Olympic athletes, but I'm, I'm currently in discussions with um, a bigger media group about doing a podcast with a major NFL player that where we really explore not just like mental health from a depression um, standpoint, but all types of different, you know, mental health, the way some players really take a holistic approach and are kind of march to the beat of a different drummer. We're looking at all. So this film is about Olympians, but it's really kind of sparked a career for me of um, researching and exploring other just avenues. like athletes in general athletes in general because mm-hmm. they're a unique group right is they, it because of the, like the super highs and the, like yeah. super lows from, look like, at Simone Biles I mean we our film was released a year before the 2021 Olympics actually HBO bought it with the intention to air it in 2020 when the Olympics were supposed to be and then a year later Simone Biles withdraws from the Olympics because of mental health issues and actually Michael Phelps mentioned the film our film went to number one that night, um, because we, we were ahead of the curve. We, we explained in the film why she was going through this. Not her, mm-hmm. but if you watch the film, you'll get why. To answer your question, the points that we hit on, that it was an educational experience for me, working with like sports psychologists. And um, basically, there's kind of five, if I remember, Michael Gervais helped me with some of the research. He's one of the great sports psychologists out there right now. He has a great podcast, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, there's five qualities that, these elite athletes, I mean, to be the best in the world out of what, 8 billion people in the world to be the best at something is kind of crazy. And so they have to have these certain qualities and none of these qualities translate into real life or human relations. So, um, it's things like narcissism, like the whole world does have, like you have to really believe the world revolves around you because it does in your world. Everybody does everything to keep you in that competitive state. Mm -hmm. And so you're a narcissist. You don't have interpersonal relationships because that's a distraction. No coach is going to let you have a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a best friend. You're not going out for drinks. You just are in that pool every single morning. So you don't have interpersonal relationships. The biggest one that stuck out to me that I was like, wow, was um, it's called identity foreclosure. So when you're eight years old and you can swim faster than the other eight-year-olds, people tell you you are destined to be a gold medalist. Yep. So you foreclose on your identity. The only thing I'm good at is swimming. I'm on the earth to swim and win a gold medal, whereas other eight-year-olds are ballet and Girl Scouts and horseback riding. Yep. And you know their identity is being explored in many different ways, and they find things that they're good at. And all of us have a lot of different things we're good at by the time we're in our 20s. Well, here you have these people that their career's over at 24, and they don't know anything else about themselves. So you, if you say, what else are you good at? They can't answer it. And I went to speak to um, Jared Speedy Peterson. He was an Olympic uh, um, skier uh, that died by suicide. Mm. And um, I spoke to his mother, and his mother showed me a portrait he drew of himself in fourth grade. And it was of a gold medal. They said, draw a picture of you. And that was identity foreclosure. All he saw was a gold medal. So um, wow. there's just a yeah um, obsessive personality, like OCD. You have to c- compulsively do something over and over and over. So then all of a sudden, you're put in the real world. And the, this is who you are. <laughs> And you wonder why they suffer greatly. I feel I was not expecting this, by the way. Mm-hmm. But when I so I trained with Bella Caroli, I was a gymnast. Oh wow! Um, and and I went to Cypress Academy in in uh, Cypress, Texas, and I trained at the same gym as Dominic Mucciano. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dominic Dawes had come to our gym, and Shannon Miller, and this is like that was in the mid uh, nineties, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Olympics. And so when you're saying that, it's like gave me chills up my back because 
everybody said to me, you're going to be the next Olympic gymnast. Cause I was so young. And so everybody else that was like in my classes were in high school and they were out partying and drinking. And I was, you know, in, um, I guess still elementary. And mm-hmm. like, that's just how good I, how much I was progressing. So they would be out drinking at our like Friday practices. And so I would just have an individual practice the entire time on Friday by myself. There's a lot of isolation, which which leads to depression. Right. But that's, but that is true. It's like everybody said that that's what was going to happen. And so that became part of my identity. So I had a really bad fall off the balance beam and I just couldn't get back on the beam after that. Like I developed this habit where I would just tap my toe a lot before I would do a pass because I just had this mental block. I couldn't. So you probably really it. related to Simone Biles. A hundred percent. So yeah. that's when everybody, like everything you just said, just brought back all these memories. Um, but when Simone was going through that and everyone's like, oh, you know, come on, like get, you're an get athlete, your head together. get it together. And I'm like, no way. Like that's so much pressure. And you know, everyone's looking at you, depending on you. Like, I feel like it was such a good move for her self personally but then also like her teammates you know like people have empathy for that um and if they don't they need to become aware she stood strong in protecting her stance and i was really proud of that she was not apologizing for protecting what she had to do to take care of herself Mm -hmm. at that minute and you know it's not about the united states it's not about the fans like it's it's about a human and they have a right to say i'm not going to compete i'm not it's not safe for me if my head's not right one totally. thing that's amazing to me as a covering sports for so long if somebody sprains an ankle or pulls a hamstring they can't play okay they can't play if someone's brain is hurting then they're weak and they right. confuse um mental illness with weakness right which it's it really is a clinical thing it Mm -hmm. is an illness Mm -hmm. just like a pulled hamstring it needs to be fixed and addressed before that person can can go compete sometimes it needs rest it needs whatever just like a hamstring but nobody sees it that way and i really hope that in the future people like myself and other people that are speaking out about it will change the perception of how we take care of the headspace of athletes. Which, so everyone go watch The Weight of Gold on HBO Max, you said. So, I mean, it yeah. sounds like that was deserved for an Emmy. Yeah, we didn't win. You didn't win, but, <laughs> didn't win, but, but you were nominated yeah. for it. HBO finished the film, Octagon and HBO finished it, and they just did such an amazing job. It was it was a really cool partnership. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so how did you get into sports broadcast in the first place? Like what, how did you get... I mean, in the field, on the field, pun, but I'm sure you've never heard that one before. <laughs> um, I I wrote, my mom founded like a seventh grade guidance counselor report where it says like, what do you want to be? And I wrote sports reporter. So pause for a second. <laughs> I just had uh, Chef Daniel Ontiveros from Carver Steak, which you've, we've, we've dined out together. Is he Greek? Um, he's Tiveros? Mexican, Ontiveros. Oh, oh I thought yeah. it was like Tavaros. Yeah. That sounds Greek. And he said the exact same thing. Like he just knew what he wanted to be that he took one of those. I think they do it in like grade school or something where they just give you the test and then they tell you, you know, like what you're going to be. And his came out to chef. Wow. I'm like, what? And I, that was my reaction. people don't know what they want to be or anything like that. But you're saying the same thing that like, and then I was listening to another podcast this morning, um, where it was Rob Deerdick. Do you know who Mm -hmm. I'm talking about? He's like the skateboarder. He was on MTV on Robin big. Anyway, this guy's like just super intelligent. And he was talking about how, you know, the podcast was like, if you don't know what you want to do, it's okay. And he was like, hold on a second. But if you do know what you want to do and you focus on that thing from a young age, you're really set up 
like to succeed a yeah. lot earlier than other people. And then you have the whole like rest of your life like mapped out. And I was like, yeah. I'm so fucking glad that he said that because that's kind of, I mean, I started this, my company when I was 24 years old. Yeah. So I feel You're like there, there are, but there are benefits, right? To like mm -hmm. knowing, not to say that it's bad if you don't, but I'm just saying that it's okay for everyone to say it's also okay and, and, preferable yeah. if you do know what you want to do for well, yeah because you get an earlier start but i think you could argue on the other side just as we talk about identity foreclosure mm -hmm. i had that so it was like okay uh i'm gonna be a sports reporter and i'm gonna be nominated for emmys and i'm gonna dominate the world and then you do that before 30 and then nobody tells you like oh, what happens when you have a baby in this profession? What happens when uh, you're getting older? What happens when your contracts are up? And so you, you, you hit a point, especially for women in sports, where right around 40, you have to be like, what else am I? Because the industry is starting to turn its back on me. It's an ageist industry. So you have to have other identities. And luckily for me, I had a passion for storytelling and I really didn't care if my face was on camera. That was never why I did this. And radio was a big love of mine. So I, I was able to do a lot of different things, even though I still do TV. But I have a lot of friends that are going through that identity foreclosure crisis where they started young, they came out the gates of journalism school swinging, they won awards. And then it was taken away because of, of ageism or sexism or whatever. Like the men don't have to deal with this. So you have to pivot and say, what else am I? And that's, that's hard too. And that's what really piqued my interest when we went to dinner for the second time. I was like, I mean, I'm getting older. We were talking about girly stuff and like having kids and everything. And then I was like, wait a second. When, once I found out, you know, your age and I was like, so that means you were on broadcast television in the 90s for mm -hmm. sports. Like, what was that like? <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. Yeah. I mean, I'm 44 years old. So my first my first job was in 98. My first paying job was a production assistant. My first on-air job wasn't until 2000. So technically, I wasn't on-air in the, in, the in the 90s. But yes, right, right around that but time. But still, that's crazy to think that like, the year 2000 was 22 years ago. 22 years ago. <laughs> like, and there I am. Still is fresh as a daisy. <laughs> like, oh, the world is is an equal place. Like, my parents did me a huge disservice by raising me to believe I could do anything the men could do. Because I came in really believing that. And I saw myself as an equal to the men. And I saw myself as more intelligent and a harder worker. And I didn't realize the business didn't see me like that. It was a hard realization when you you feel your identity is one thing and people look at you as a cute blonde or she must be dumb or she must not know football because of the way she looks. And so dealing with that early on was very difficult. And in the early 2000s, I mean, you think sex, sexism is still very live and well in sports broadcasting, but it was a totally different game back then. The opportunities, I mean, no women were doing play-by-play. -play. It was like, maybe if you get lucky and make it to network, you can be a cute sideline reporter. Right. And then they're going to dump you, spit you out and dump you out, you know, before you're 35. Um, they're just, I didn't think a lot about it. I think I thought like, okay, I'm going to start out. I'm going to work really hard and then I'll get my own show. Maybe I'll go into like news and entertainment. I mean, whatever. Like, I'll be like Oprah. You, you don't think, you don't see anything past like 30. <laughs> When you're starting, you just don't. Totally. Nope. I want to write a book called Ever After because everybody tells you as a little girl, like, okay, you're going to have, you're going to work hard, have success. You're going to get married. You have kids. Nobody ever gives you anything after that. 
Like, yeah. what is the, then you're going to live happily ever after. Well, what right. is ever after? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to figure that out for a lot of women that are, you know, mid thirties, forties that are like, oh, okay. I did all that. Check. Yeah. Have my own business. Check. Made a film. Check. Got married. Check. Had a kid. Check. Whatever it is mm-hmm. that you want to do. And then all of a sudden you've got 50 more years, 60 more years to live. Nobody talked to you about that. Right. And it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Totally. It's crazy that nobody talks about that. Right. And so when, so you got into sports being a production assistant, like, Mm -hmm. is that how you learned about sports or you already had this natural, like, was there like a pull towards like football or? Well, I was an athlete. Yeah. I was an athlete and I came from a big sports family. My dad was a baseball coach, you know, season ticket holder uh, to the then Redskins, now commanders in Washington, DC. Um, very athletic family. Every cousin, I have a big fat Greek family, I have a big fat American family on my mom's side. Every cousin played sports, my sister. We just like, and there were no nannies. Right. (laughs) So you went to the game of whoever was playing, you know, and you were around the field. And so that was just kind of what our family did. What kind of sports did you play? I played soccer, basketball, softball. Mm -hmm. Uh, I ran track. Um, and I played indoor soccer too. Wow. Yeah. I did a lot of sports. <laughs> Jeez. And so the sports background, you get into production assistant, you're on MLB network too, right? I did work for them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that way before that, I mean, I started out in news. You just kind of get on air in a small town, wherever there's a signal back then there was no YouTube or you, you couldn't put your own IG live out you know, you couldn't make your own content in order to be a broadcaster. You had, you had to have somebody hire you that has a signal. And that was my goal. And I went to a small town in Maryland where I was in a culture shock because it was like agriculture, rural area. That's where I come from, (laughs) but in Texas. Um, I I mean, I, I came from a very like suburban, um, you know, those rural areas, Mm -hmm. you know, we go like pumpkin picking, but like, it wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't like this where the, the kids were actual farmers and, um, so I went to that area and, you know, you just kind of work your way up from there. I went to New York as a traffic reporter. I was a chopper reporter for WNBC. You just, it, it evolves and opportunities come and you fight and you send out your, you know, you're constantly trying to be seen. You send out your reels to everybody. And then if you get good enough, you get to like, you know, I got finally got to Columbus, Ohio covering the Buckeyes and I got an agent then for the first time and you get a small time agent and you just kind of keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And then one day you wake up and you're hosting, you know, Thursday night football and you're sitting next to Deion Sanders and Michael Irvin and, and Mariucci. And it, it's very bizarre. But it's also good for people to have that awareness that like that. Yeah, it's like one day you don't you don't just see somebody like you on TV and you're like, oh, she just you know, she just got that position. It's like you really did put in. There are no overnight. It cracks me out where people are like, oh, they're they're such an overnight success or their career's really accelerated. And I want to say you have not you just don't know the road they took. Like nobody just show. I mean, some people get a break and they show up. Um, they usually don't last long, but most of the people in this industry have been grinding it out uh, for a long time. And then maybe they get a really big assignment and all of a sudden everybody thinks they're an overnight success. It's like, uh, that's not how you're it like, works. Did you see any of their previous work? Yeah. You're like, they were covering corn prices in, you know, 2001 <laughs> in, <laughs> in a Iowa. small town in Iowa. <laughs> yeah. And now they're on Thursday Night Football and you think they're a big overnight success. Do you still get nervous when you go on TV? I don't. And it it's crazy to me that it, I don't because 
it's, I don't know. I was thinking about that. People asked me that question. Somebody asked me that question just a little while ago. And it was funny because there's nothing that could make me nervous now. And I think that comes from there's nothing I haven't done. Right. So nothing's new. Right. There's nothing that, there's no medium. There's nothing that you can put me on that I haven't done. I might get nervous if I'm asked to do a broadcast on a sport that I am not familiar with because mm-hmm. I just am very protective of my own credibility. For sure. So I want to be really prepared. Whereas football, it just rolls off the top of my head. So football's your favorite thing to Yeah, and I've been on. doing it. Th- I, I was a longtime baseball reporter, though. I traveled with the Baltimore Orioles for a long time. Um, a beat reporter in baseball, that's a pretty grinding, hardcore job. Mm-hmm. Um but like now if I'm asked to do, I like I, I do Sirius XM NFL radio and fantasy sports radio. But if I'm asked to go over to the MLB channel, which um, is fun, but I have to actually study and prepare. So I'll feel a little bit like, okay, I have to, I have to be more on point. Totally. But it's not a nervousness. Um, like I kind of miss that. I wish I got that. Butterfly still. Yeah, that was, I can remember the first time the jib camera like coming across on Thursday Night Football and them counting me in. It was one of my first shows and I look over and the people I grew up like loving and being icons covering were my co-host. And I just had this holy shit moment. Like it hit and I almost said it out loud and they're like five, four. And I'm like, holy <laughs> like, oh, God, shit. God, oh, God. And yeah. then you just turn it on. And though. then I just perform because I was ready at that point in my career. I'd been on TV a long time and obviously I deserved to be there. But I'll never forget Marshall Falk. Like I think he was sitting next to me in one of those moments, you know, Hall of Famer. And he, it's like he felt what I was thinking or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it was really cool because he said, he said, I just want you to know a woman of your stature belongs here. Hell yes. And I, and I was like, it still makes me cry. Isn't that, I feel like those moments are like those, that gives me goosebumps too. Like those divine moments when you're like, the universe set me up for this and put that person next to me. Like I've that had he that was intuitive enough. Totally. And it's like, that's what people need more of. And there's been times yeah. when I've stopped and like I've wanted to say something and I'm like, you know what? No, I remember when someone did that to me and I needed it. And so I say that and I've like had people brought to tears. That too. is like a good, uh, you know, I, I think as I get older, I make more of a point to say what I'm thinking about people when it's yep. positive. Yeah. Um, if I, I recognize, because I, I, I teach at USC, I teach broadca- uh, sports broadcast and I see these so young cool. broadcasters scared to death and I can remember, you know, God rest her soul, Dr. Lee Thornton. I still remember her telling me. <laughs> I get emotional. That's that, me too. Me too. That's- I still remember her telling me like, like she was so tough and so hard and she was successful in the business before she became a professor. But I thought I just blended with everybody else. And she was like, Amber, you're one of two students I have that I really believe can make it in this business. But you need to take this serious. Like, like it was a learning moment for me. And right. her just telling me that she thought I she could saw do it. it. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge turning point in yeah. my life. And so now when I see those little sparks, those moments, I make sure I tell those students I see that. Like yeah. I saw that. I want whatever that was. That was it. So let's. let's How many people build are in your that. class? You Every semester, I have a, I have a small class because it's very hands on. Yeah. Um, it's a four hundred level too, mm-hmm. so we have pretty serious students. Mm-hmm. Um, I have about anywhere from eleven to nineteen, depending does, on the batch. Does that make you nervous? Like I feel like I, I feel like now I can have a mic in my face or like a camera, but if I had to stand Speak up in front of like <laughs> students that are like hanging on every word that you say, no, I'd be nervous. I, um, not nervous. I feel a tremendous responsibility because mm-hmm. I know they're hanging on what I say, and I yeah. know what I say can influence the rest of their life. Like teaching totally. is 
is such an under um uh, underrated under like yes appreciated mm-hmm. uh profession i'm not saying that for me i'd look at you know i'm i'm sitting there with the elite usc students that pay gazillion dollars to be there and really want to hear me my sister is a public school teacher in baltimore mm-hmm. you know with some of the most troubled children there are in the united states that are just trying to survive and i think about what she does like oh my gosh our education system is so wild like they need to be paid so much more money. We pay, it's like I mean, the Kardashians ch- are billionaires and uh, Baltimore City school teachers can barely make ends meet. Like what's going on totally. with the world? That's our youth. Shout out to all the teachers in those really tough areas that are that love the kids. Definitely. And do it for the kids. Definitely. I mean, I honestly, I don't know where I would be without a good education. And that's kind of one of the problems here in Las Vegas. I don't know if you know about that, but it's just like not the best education system it's gotten much better now that people well because the city was so transient Mm -hmm. that it's like people really didn't even when you met somebody who was from las vegas it was like a unicorn because you're like that that (laughs) doesn't really happen like you were born and raised here that's super weird everybody says there's no taxes you should move to vegas you know i fly in and out from los angeles i said well when you have three kids and you add up the the private school costs it's not a tax break it's not a tax break (laughs) but that's but yeah that's right like i feel like now the education system is getting better and one of the things that brought i think that and it brings people and makes it feel like a home is sports teams yeah you know what i mean isn't that cool it's super cool and obviously being from texas where we like live breathe eat shit football (laughs) i was a cheerleader growing up when i stopped my gymnastics career i went into cheerleading but um but yeah, I feel like I didn't understand the camaraderie because it was just part of our lives mm-hmm. until I moved to a, to a city where there was no sports teams. Yeah. Um, but you don't know what's missing. You just can't put your finger on it. And then all of a sudden we get the Vegas Golden Knights and it's like going into an arena and, and all having the same, like your commonality or cheering for the yeah. same team and it's your home team. Um, and then, you know, obviously now the Raiders and it's just like a totally different And the Aces city. who are world champions. Totally. I know. I can't leave them out. Yeah. I, they announced it. I can't remember where I was, but it was just like a whole moment. Yeah. It's like people that didn't even know that we had that team, which is like embarrassing. It's you know? embarrassing. Yeah. It's super embarrassing. Um, but sports does bring a city together and it's a commonality that people that live within that city share. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like Baltimore, you know, where I'm from, they have Purple Friday and all the kids wear ravens on Fridays. You yeah. know, it's really it's really awesome for kids to root for their... It's hard for me raising kids in a different area than I where I grew up because you want to raise your children as fans of your team, but then you want them... You know what it means to love your hometown team. So, yep. you know, we, we kind of try to push like the LA Kings and the Rams and stuff like that on them. I know, because yeah. you know the Raiders played the Texans last Sunday. And so oh, I just... I didn't, torn. I didn't know how to feel about that, but, yeah. you know, it was it's cool that they won... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad the they did. won. I'm glad they won. Yeah. Um, so when you are doing broadcast segments, are ratings higher when there's a female? Do you know in anything sports? about that? Mm-hmm. In sports? Um, no, I don't think there's any definitive. Um, I might be wrong, but I think I would have heard it by now. I don't right. think there's, I think it's it's show to show. It's network to network. It, it like you really, because there's some, you know, some of the highest rated shows right now, I'm trying to think in the sports world, um, or like the Pat McAfee show, of which there's no women. But then like NFL Live is very highly rated. That has Mina Kimes. Um, oh my gosh. And um, Laura. Rutledge. Sorry. Nice. Laura Rutledge. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Laura will look up your Laura's last name. Laura's going to be like, I hate you, Amber. No, I'm a big fan. Um, 
and they're carrying that show. So I think it's it really is show to show. It, and it, and it, isn't that cool that I think we've pre- we've hit the point. Finally, I agree with you. Where you don't note it, you don't know if it's you don't notice that it's a woman. It's not a big deal that she's leading a big show for mm-hmm. sports, which it, it was when I was first starting out. Yeah, and I I can remember watching TV, and if I'd see a woman on strange. a sports broadcast, I was like, oh wow. Oh, yeah, you know, and I'm older than you. So imagine like in the uh, 80s. I mean, we had that was like Gail Gardner and, you know, not many. Not, Linda Cohn was one of the first on SportsCenter in the early 90s. But I didn't people said, oh, who who did you look up to as a sportscaster when you were young? And I, I give men because I, I give male names because I didn't have women. There That's was nobody crazy. And it didn't occur to me. It's weird. I never thought like, oh, I need to do this so that there's more women. I just said that was a job I could do. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized until <laughs> I got in it how, how few women there are. It, right. It like spoke to you. And that's why you did it. That's yeah. like, I, and I'm, I might get some like hate for this. I don't know. But I do not like the term boss babe. Uh, yeah, I, I hate just, that. Because like, babe so, sounds so degrading. Well, plus, like, if you're just a boss, then you're just a boss. Like, I don't yeah. know why it needs to be so highlighted, especially, like, today. It's, like, we. I, it's one of those things, in my opinion, where it's, like, the more you talk about it, the more it, like, draws a line that, like, nope, you're just, you're a woman and a boss. It's, like, no, I'm just, I'm, yeah. just a boss. Yeah, Thank I'm you. just a boss. I don't need boss babe or boss girl or whatever these words are. Totally. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not a fan of a lot of, like, the queen, like, you know, people be like, oh, queen, you know, and I'm, like, <laughs> I don't think anybody should be worshipped. I think, like, it should be, we all should be uplifting everybody else, not lionizing and crowning you know other people totally. i just i feel that uncomfortable when people do that mm-hmm. to me yeah and i get it i've been around a long time and it's a show of respect in the younger generation that's right but i think it's like no i should be lifting you up not not the other way around yeah it, i just don't feel comfortable with that yeah and so your co-host on rate for readers mm-hmm. is he's uh james, james jones, jones and eric allen so yeah. and then J- so james played for the readers yeah before right he, he's mostly known for playing for the packers winning the super bowl with the packers mm-hmm. with aaron Rodgers and mm-hmm. stuff and then he played one year with the raiders <laughs> but the raiders hired him here so we're lucky to have him and then eric allen of course longtime raider i hope he gets into the hall of fame Okay, so I want to go back to also, and another thing that we talked about also at dinner was just what it's like in like the book that you wanted to write called Ever After. <laughs> so how is that? Like ha- like having a career that is very um, demanding and then also having a family. And like when you became pregnant, were you nervous about having children? What was the reality like there? I think every woman that's in sports broadcasting panics when they get pregnant because they've seen what happens to women when they get pregnant. Or just broadcast in general, right? In general, Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's maybe a little bit more forgiving for news than or entertainment or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Sports is still pretty brutal. Um, I mean, I was demoted, like lost my show during my third child. Every single child I had, I lost positioning, whether it was a show or got assigned different or had some man boss decide that I probably shouldn't be traveling without asking me. So yeah, it was horrible. I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't want to scare people out there. I had a, I hope mine was uniquely horrible. Um, but I, but probably I wish, not. but probably not. And with uh, my other female friends that are my age and my business that are now have had, um, children, they, they all have a story to tell. 
Every single one of them has a story to tell of something that really horribly unfair happened to them as a result of the fact that they just happened to be the one in the marriage that has a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really comes down to that. You know, we end up making less money in our 40s than men. And a big reason for that is that we take the pregnancy tax, they call it. Mm -hmm. You know, you lose your footing in your career when you go through maternity leave, when you go through the pregnancy, you very few women come back to the exact trajectory in my business that they were on before and not by choice. Like they could come back. I came back within six weeks and still lost my position. Six weeks of maternity leave. Uh-huh. I was still like had stitches in, you know, from a C-section. Um, and it's just so crazy because it's, you know, when people talk about women's rights and women's suffrage, like for me, I, I'm just like, well, this is just like how it is. And we've come a long way and this is my life now. Mm -hmm. But then I, but it's not like we are surrounded by stories like this and this happening. And that's another reason why those terms like boss babe and things are coined because it is, you know, like different. I don't want to say different. It's like, it puts you in a different bracket or category when you're doing things that normally men do. Like that's the point of the babe word, right? Is that it's normally a man that does it. And there's a man that's making those decisions on your, on your maternity leave. And if you keep your position or not, I mean, that's just how our bodies are built. Like, and it's, we're, we're freaking magical creatures. I'm sorry, (laughs) but we're like growing, growing Growing children. Right. Like what? And it, it doesn't just affect your career because then, you know, you lose your footing in something that you love and you knew you deserved. And that's really depressing. And then on top of that, you're going through postpartum depression, which I suffered from really bad didn't know it. And I didn't know it gets worse with every child. Nobody told me that. I I didn't know that either. I didn't know that either. Um, And it kind of makes sense by my third child. Like I was really suffering from postpartum Um, and to lose your job or your position or your show or whatever, simply because you had a baby is the most distraught feeling ever. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of in the position of, do I sue the NFL? I mean, I'm sitting there with a four-year-old, a two-year-old and an infant And I'm weak from a C-section and I'm suffering from postpartum. And my choice is, these are my choices, to sue the NFL, um, have them totally rip me to shreds with their big time lawyers and defame me um, over the next three years while nobody's bringing in money and nobody's paying the lawyer. You know, my husband's bringing in money, but not the money I was bringing in. Right. You know, so you're put in that position. You're not ready to fight. You're not ready to go up against a mammoth like the NFL. Um, and then you're also not ready to give up your career, but if you sue the NFL, you'll be blackballed. You'll never work for any network again. So that's So what did you do? I'm like, so you go back to work. Like- I went back to work, literally had to watch my desk have a box on it. They packed it up because they moved me. They go, this is for NFL total access hosts. And the person that's replacing you now has this desk. So where's my new desk? You don't have one. So awkward. I went in the little closet that they called a pumping room, a mother's room, because like some other woman asked for it and just cried. It was hum- everybody was looking at me in the newsroom like, what are you going to do? This is horrible. Like all my coworkers were like, this is I can't believe this is happening. And so I had to in order to keep working and keep doing what I loved, I literally had to bend over and take it up the you know what? Yeah. And they want they won. I mean, I think I won by still showing up. And they couldn't get rid of me. And I still show up every day to this day. And I still have a beautiful career. But that moment was so dark. And that time in my life was so dark. And it took a while to kind of recover. But it, it does lead to the exploration of other things other than 
being just a broadcaster and to me that's helped me find things that I just am so passionate about to right this day. and that's what it, when we were talking about like those divine moments of like intervention it's like these things that are horrible and they're not, painful they're, they're painful it's like but innovation and creativity and, and growth they're comes spawned out of from that totally yeah. so I feel like that's got to be how you found like your passion for documentary making and yeah. filmmaking and um and but I do want to talk more about postpartum depression I've heard I've had two girlfriends who have gone through it Mm -hmm. and I feel like there's this like shame around it like they don't want to tell people because they feel like they're different but the more I've heard people talk about it it's like one of those things where if you like see a red car or you you like want a red car and then you like start seeing them everywhere yeah it's like like, oh you experienced it you experienced right I keep hearing all of these people that are that I know that have um experienced it and just so for men that are listening um I've heard that there, you can have like deep, like suicidal thoughts. It's like your thoughts aren't your own. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you for postpartum depression? It's really dark and it's really confusing because you're not, you don't know what's wrong. Like, cause nobody talks about it. And my generation, our mothers didn't talk about it. So they don't know what it is. So we don't have, you know, the people you rely on in those times are people like your mom. Mm -hmm. And if, if your mom's not there to say, not that they didn't want to be, but to identify it. Whereas I feel like now me having two daughters, I'll be able to identify it and be like, this is what you're going through. And if somebody had just kind of said that to me earlier, or if I understood why I felt so bad by my third child, like what's going on? You walk around the early, the first couple of weeks, like when you you feel a severe detachment to your child, which is devastating. Yeah, uh, It's devastating when you recover and you look back on that time mm-hmm. and it just robs you of that warmth and that connection you should have been having, but you really don't want to take care of the child. And so you're kind of battling with this. Everybody's telling you, you should be having these warm, fuzzy feelings. And you're like, just somebody else take the kid. And it's nobody wants to say that because it sounds like you're a horrible mother, but it is like your brain is in a different place. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, you feel really dark as far as I felt like for probably two to three years after my son, I can remember one day just feeling like nothing. I'm not excited about anything. And Mm -hmm. I I love life. Like you've gotten to know me a little bit. Like totally. I, I love life. That. Like I'm out there. I've always I love very to have charismatic. Fun. Totally. Yeah, and I and I I've always been happy, and um, I've always been like social. And I remember thinking, there's no trip uh, to Greece, um, job you could give nothing. Like nothing right now excites me. Mm-hmm. And every day became, it was like I would have to wind myself up. Like it was like a wind up toy. I would f- like have to try my hardest to put on this face for my children to try to be the best mother I could when I felt like inside I had nothing to give. And it was, it was devastating. And it makes me sad now that, you know, you go through therapy and I got on medication and it was a long journey back to myself. Mm -hmm. And I look back and I'm so mad that I lost that time. It's like a dark hole of my babies being infants and little ones because I see the pictures. There's times where I see the pictures and I'm in the picture smiling. I don't remember being there or I remember being there and wanting to just go in my room and shut the door and be away from everybody. Like your marriage suffers greatly. I was just about to ask, did your husband know what was going on or like, did he understand? He knew I was depressed. Um, I don't think he knew for how long, I think in the first couple of weeks when I like couldn't get out of bed, he obviously, he calls the doctor, he calls my mom, like what's going on? We need help. And it's hard for men because they're trying 
to be supportive and they want to, men want to fix everything. Mm -hmm. So they just make calls to like, can you prescribe her something? Can you come over? Can you, rather than do research on postpartum depression to be able to talk to you about it. So God bless men and husbands. They really want to do their best, but it's an awkward position for them. Totally. They don't, and then they're also trying to take care of the kid that you're not taking care of. So it's just this whole family dynamic that is devastating. I, I lost a friend that died, not a friend, my friend's sister um, died by suicide after her fourth child. And I just, it crushed me because it wasn't her that did it. I knew what it was like to not be you and do something drastic at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a horrible disease. It's a horrible thing. And I, I wish more people spoke about it and more women felt comfortable getting. Uh, I had one of my friends, I looked at her, I said, you're you have postpartum. Like I and did she have no idea or she was just afraid she's kind or of this all natural, all mm-hmm. natural person. Yep, yep. And she said, Oh, it's just the baby blues. I said, No, you need medication. You're not pulling out of this. And she said, No, it's bad for my body and the breastfeeding and this and that. I won't do it. And she suffered for way life. I mean, I would say she suffered for maybe four or five till the baby was four or five years old. Wow. And oh my gosh. they say it can last up to like four or five years oh if you don't do something to treat it. And so what would you say to people who are listening who either know somebody who are going through that or maybe have gone through it themselves? Like, what would you have said to your younger self, like, oh. just get help sooner? Or like, what are some like tips that you would give? Somebody? I wish I could hug all of them. <laughs> First of all, just just hug him and say, like, this this is not you or your fault. This is uh, one of the many, many prices we pay as women for deciding to have babies. And it's not fair because we don't live in a fair world. But give yourself some grace and give yourself a break and identify it as as what it is, not of what you are. Like, this is postpartum. This is something I have. This is not something I am. I'm not a bad mother. I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm not a bad mother. I'm I'm suffering from something that I need help. And don't be afraid to reach out and, and get help. Get on medication. Like, medic- the stigma of antidepressants is horrible. Like, they've saved people's lives. They will get you out of the rut get yourself into therapy and start the deep work necessary to pull your, do it for your kid. Yeah. Don't just sit there and suffer and, and don't expect your husband or your partner to come save you. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. have to, you have to save yourself and it kind of sucks. It's just another thing we have to do as women, mm-hmm. but you have to save yourself and you, and don't be afraid to make the first step of calling someone, um, call your girlfriend, say I'm suffering from this and I need help. And usually they will help you. They will help you get out of it. I love that. I feel like there needs to be more awareness brought to it. Like I said, I've heard so many more people discussing it. And Mm -hmm. so I'm glad that you are openly talking about it. Let me add one thing that's really crucial to suicide prevention in general, Mm -hmm. just not, not just postpartum. If you think somebody you know is suffering or has suicidal thoughts or could maybe um, do something, ask them a question. Ask them flat out, have you ever thought about taking your own life? Have you ever had suicidal thoughts because I'm worried about you? Sometimes speaking it opens a whole world that they were scared to say to anybody. Right. And it gives them the freedom. It gives them the power back to say, yes, I, I do. And then you can together make steer them in the right direction. 
but people suffer in silence. People yeah. that are suffering from depression don't have the words to say, I'm suffering, I need help. Yeah. It's more the people around them need to look look out for your people, yeah. check on them. You're not yourself. How are you? Have you ever had suicidal right. thoughts? I, I think questions allow people to be honest. It opens the door for honesty. And and that's part of the reason why people get in, in those ruts. And my opinion is they don't think people care because nobody asks. It's like when my, and you know the story, but my... Um, my best friend and I, who I feel like was my soulmate passed away. It's like his mother, like nobody wants to talk about him. And and, so imagine like as, as a mother yourself losing a child Mm -hmm. and like, everyone's just so afraid to like say his name around her. And it's, it's like, like but, for her. but for her, she's like, let me cry. Let me be sad. It's like music to my ears when I can hear my son's name again, because Aww. I don't want people to just not speak it. But that's like, that's kind of the point, right? Like you, you want to open the door up for people to be honest and have those honest tears. If you feel that you need to cry. And, and some people are just, people don't talk about like death, suicide, postpartum depression, all of these like dark subjects that are just, I think they, it's too personal. They light shut they on don't want to impose. And right. I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier in the podcast about if you, if you have thought about someone, slow your own life down. Like I think we have these positive thoughts or we have these concerning thoughts about our friends and then, okay, let me go let my dog out. You know, like you, you go on with your life, pause when you think about that and say, you know what, I'm going to call them. I'm going to tell, or they're sitting right in front of me. Just something as simple as like, um, I've noticed that you've been working really hard uh, at your job. Like, are you okay? Are you tired? Just things like compliment them. You're hustling, man. I'm really proud of you for what you're doing. I had a that girlfriend people. do that recently. And it was just like, it was a meme, like a little flyer thing that had like, if you know a girl that blah, blah, blah. And she sent it and like, it literally brought me to tears and it like felt a little silly, but I was like, no, actually it, I feel these strong emotions because I don't hear it enough. Yeah. Like I'm, you and it's know, not that you need to be praised. It's just nice for somebody to say like, I see you. Totally. And like, I recognize the work you're putting in. And the same goes with, I see you that you're suffering. And if you notice somebody's being a little different, don't be, you're not imposing by saying, are you all right? A lot of times the people, they suck at work. You know, somebody you work with, you're like, I hate them. I can't stand them because they're a bitch all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe something really bad is I was a bitch, mm-hmm. a really bad bitch during that time. I didn't treat people at work the way I should have. I don't even remember talking to them half the time, but I'm sure I was short and nasty and annoyed and just trying to get through the day. If somebody who cared about me would have said like, left a note that yeah. said, Hey, like, are let's you go, doing let's, all right? Like, can yeah. you make some time for dinner or yeah, let's go have a drink. Right. Are you doing okay? Like, cause I know you mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm not accusing you of being a bitch. I know you're something's going on. Right. Ask somebody or be kind to somebody. And it's amazing that the amount of help that you can afford them. Totally. I feel like we are all we have, you know, each other. And so it's so important to like, remember that you're sharing a space and a, in a world with people who like are just doing their best just like you and just like me and just like everybody else. So everybody's got some shit, right? Everyone's got some shit. Everybody's got their own (laughs) shit. And just because you think yours is under control doesn't mean yours smells any better than theirs. Like just help each other and realize everybody's got something going on. I remember when like therapy used to be like a taboo word. And I'm like, I don't care who knows about that. I go to therapy. I'm like, I love my therapist. Like we text each other. Oh yeah. (laughs) Everybody should go to therapy. Even if you feel like things are going well, you should go to therapy just to better understand yourself. Why do you do things? How can you do things better? Um, I hate that. I'll hear this a lot. You know, people think that mental illness or depression or whatever 
is weakness. Like it shows that you're weak. It doesn't mean you're mentally weak. It means you have a clinical problem. Mm-hmm. I, I can't stand that stigma that you just can't handle a situation. I, I, I hate when you hear somebody spoken about that died by suicide said, oh, that was cowardly, or they took the easy way out, or that was selfish. And I want to say, until you have been where I have been, and I've been in a dark place where you, I can understand why people die by suicide. I can understand that feeling of it is exhausting to wake up tomorrow. The thought of waking up tomorrow is exhausting and I have nothing left to give. I get that feeling. And to call somebody selfish that is suffering from that feeling because they have a chemical imbalance is absolute I think that's cowardly and 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 the other the flip side of that is you felt like that I felt like that like when my best friend passed away I remember having those thoughts and mm-hmm. it's like ob- it, obviously it seems like it's just such a different person but the good news is that you can get help and you can get better is the other thing the yes, loss you can find see. light again and I get how you feel like in that darkness there is no light but that's I think what I would say to anybody that's listening to this is challenge yourself like take every strength that you have left and i know you don't have a lot but try to understand that if you take the right steps there will be light and there's a long life to live Mm -hmm. and you will find it again your kids i feel like are so lucky to have you as their mom because a lot of people don't talk about this kind of stuff you know what i mean Um, i check on their mental health all the time like what kind of things do you say to them just i try to be really in tune to cues because kids will tell you Mm-hmm. You know, and I think parents, oh, okay, blah, 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 and you, you go, I have to do the dishes and you keep going. But when they say things like, um, oh, mom, this girl said something to me today at school, you know, and oh, she, she called me this or that. Well, instead of being like, well, tell the teacher or say something mean back. I said, well, how did that make you feel? Are you sad right now? Um, do you think there's ways that you could not be sad if you addressed it? How can we address the situation so that you're not sad? Like focusing on the emotional strain a bully or something takes on your child um, versus way to combat the bully, I think is a much more effective approach because it teaches them to examine their emotions That's right. and why they're feeling that way and how they can come up with a plan of action to not feel that way. Mm-hmm. I especially feel like that was true for like, you know, I think it's less true now, but just when we were growing up, it's like boys weren't allowed to especially talk about their emotions too. Yep. And so that's an important thing for, I think, fathers to hear too. It's not just the mother's job to ask. It's also the dad's job. Yeah. To have this, I think the manliest thing you can do is have a conversation with this, with your son about how he's feeling. Totally. So do you think that your journey with postpartum depression led you to write about or to do the documentary about the athletes facing oh, absolutely. suicide? Absolutely. Because um, I was struggling making the film, the original film, because um, I just... Maybe I didn't identify it outwardly, but I knew there was a different story than the story I was telling. Mm. So sometimes as a filmmaker, you say, okay, I'm going to tell the story. This is, this, there was a book written about this. Let's buy the book rights. Let's tell the story. And then you have to trust your instinct as a storyteller as you're doing your interviews and you're talking to your subjects. You have to read what's right in front of you. And sometimes totally. there's a different story that needs to be told. And unfortunately, it wasn't until um, Stephen Holcomb died by suicide that we realized there was a much more. But I look back and I can remember thinking, this man's not well you know, I, I, maybe there's something I can do to talk to him. You know, I was kind of, because of my own, I, I talked to him 
after the interview, he was telling me about his depression and how after the Olympics, he doesn't know what he's going to do. And I was open with him about my depression too. Um, so I knew there was a story there, but I just thought that was going to be part of our film about depression and overcoming it and the dangers of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it would become the story because of such a tragic end. So yes, I, I think my, my suffering for many, many years from postpartum depression has led to who I am today. I think nothing has probably shaped me more in my adult life than that experience. Wow. It's made, it's made me more compassionate. It's made me a better mother. It's led me to, to tell stories that, you know, people can't tell because they don't have a voice that they don't know, you know, yet. So I want to explore those stories. It just has made me understand myself, forgive myself, teach myself to grow, to, to kind of have, your, have yourself broken down and then to build yourself back up into something stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I never would have been who I am today if it wasn't for what I went through, the darkness that I went through. And to me, that is a success story. You know, It it's, is. It's still hard. It's still a battle. There's times where, you know, you have to get over the anger of the, the, the life that the depression stole from you, the, the chunk loss. of yeah. the time loss, mm-hmm. the memories with your children, the relationships. Um, you wish you had done so much more different and, and you've got to forgive yourself in a way. Um, there's times too where you look back on maybe career opportunities that were missed during that time. You get angry. I should have been here. I should have done this. Um, but that's part of the healing process is kind of forgiving yourself, accepting that it was out of your control and that, you know, I'm religious, um, that this was the path that God made for me for a reason. And I think doing podcasts like this or my films or whatever, when I, whenever I can speak openly, um, I feel like it, I can help people and yeah. that's a greater purpose than I ever had. I was selfish before. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> it was very selfish. Like, no, no, no. I just mean yeah. like the, that the path, like, like what you just talked about, how it's like, you know, I know that I just read your huge bio and I'm like, you know, NFL this and sportscaster this and Emmy this. And then like the turn that this took, I feel like is so much more meaningful than, oh, yeah. you know, because all of those things are obviously about you as a person. Well, you but met, I read feel- the Instagram po- profile, right? Like that's what I try to teach my young girls too is we all look at everybody's Instagram. And so your my bio was my highlights and the great things about me. I always say nobody ever puts on their bio, you know, their antidepressant pills, like this is the dosage I'm up to now. And oh, here's a picture of my husband that just cheated on me with blah, blah. Like nobody fucking puts, nailing it. <laughs> nobody puts their shit out there it's a highlight reel it's a highlight reel and it's not even a true highlight reel it's an amplified pr driven highlight reel 100 of of my highlights the way i want you to see them to think i'm fantastic and so i was talking to um i was at uh, this place called summer house tan that we used to do their um pr and social media and anyway we're like having this conversation was like after hours she's closing on the shop and we're just talking and i was like you know i'm just so over posting like the posts yeah. like photos and the posting and everything and, and I am a publicist and now it's like a creative social media marketing agency and so I'm like you know I decided that like after this post I'm not doing it anymore and then there was another woman that was in there that had just um, hired us and she's like well I mean the reason why I hired you is because your personal Instagram <laughs> and then the other one was like yeah that's why I hired you too and I was like well fuck like, me. I'm in a yeah I'm in a professional <laughs> trap <laughs> exactly but I it is myself in a corner and I tell everyone that it's like social media unfortunately is a necessary evil 
people these days. Yeah. If you're, pu- if you're NPR, if you're a public figure like myself, you know, if you're a blue check person, you can have we, to stay relevant. Can we please talk about the guy that came up to us at Caviar Bar? And <laughs> Oh my God. Do you know <laughs> what I'm about check, to say? The blue, the blue check. check mark, that motherfucker. Oh, and at this point, God. we were probably like a few cocktails we deep. Were we were definitely. having a good time at good old Caviar Bar. And uh, this guy comes over and I think he tried to send us some drinks or their yeah. table tried to send us some drinks. I so was sure definitely enough, a little foggy by this point. I know. I'm, that's why I'm like <laughs> re- recapping what I can remember from it. So it's, I think at that point, one of them had ventured over and he was, he said to me, do you know who I am? Or do you recognize he me? He said, do you know who I am? I was <laughs> like, said. he's like some <laughs> plastic surgeon He's a plastic guy. surgeon. And so he's like, we're like, great. He's like, if you send me a DM, then I'll, and then you guys started talking about something that was actually business related. But anyway, when, when, and remember, I didn't want to message him back because he had DM'd me a you long time ago. You had already dealt with him and he was a jerk. And he was a jerk. Yeah. And so when I, when I, he said, send me a DM and I'll blah, blah, blah. So I send him a DM and he goes, where's your blue check he mark? He goes, I only deal with blue check people. And I was like, oh my God, check, like, check please. That is literally yeah, go. the douchiest thing I've ever heard anyone say no. in my entire life. People, there, well, there are a lot of douchebags in the world. Um, <laughs> I hate the the social media thing and what it has done to society. And as a mother, I just see how these kids, like, they want, like, how many likes, and it's, it's so really scary. about their self-esteem, and it's so sad, and, but then we see adults, like, douchebag, you know, that perpetuate this idea that, like, you're only important, or you only matter if you have a certain amount of followers, and it's a, look, I think there would be maybe a world where it the pendulum swings back the other way because it's so destructive, especially to young people right now. I've thought about that so many times. Like, I pray. Is it going to be some sort of like universal resurgence of like, I don't know. I mean, because I remember what it was like to have a phone with a cord. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And like... I was in college with no cell phone. To- and so <laughs> I, I can't remember if we talked about this, but there's like a TikTok something going around where parents are going in their oh, kids' room. Oh, 90s terms? Oh. No, no. They, oh, they say, put your hand up to... Like you're holding up... the Like you're talking on the phone. So we <laughs> would go like this. Would go like, yeah. Because there's a hand, receiver. Yeah. And they don't know what a receiver is. So they and go so like they this. They go like this. <laughs> it's a flat palm. You've got to do it to your kids. It's so... And so... Oh, that's the, awesome. The parent is like... One parent's recording the kids and then the other parent's like recording like a <laughs> selfie. And so it's like the, the the dad or the mom is like, oh my God, because they do it every single time. There's no... Have you seen the one where they ask them 90s terms? Like, what are yellow pages? What no. is a CD? Oh it's what's a Rolodex. Yellow pink. They're like, it's a knockoff Rolex. <laughs> we were just talking about um, Chef Daniel from Carver Steak was just mm-hmm. talking about how he drove across to like move to Vegas. And he was like, I had to, you know, map quest it. And, then, <laughs> oh. and we were like laughing. And then he's like, actually, it's like, I'm pretty sure I used a Garmin. Remember those? Like the things you like suction cupped yep. to your, to your oh, I moved to New York City in 2001. <laughs> And I can remember looking for apartments in Long Island and I map, I, you would get the address in a paper. Mm-hmm. You would find, you know, properties in a paper. You would get the address. You would map quest all 10 addresses, have your 10 pages yep. and start from your house and go 
to every single property to look for houses. Totally. Noahapartments.com. Like so dangerous, actually. Oh yeah, just like knocking on the <laughs> door. At papers. No, like, I mean, like, hey, nice ad. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, I have a, you know, I'm looking for a roommate and they say they're 23 year old woman. It's like a 50 year old pedophile. But that's kind of like the chicken or the egg question. I'm like, did the world get like more scary because there's an awareness around it because of the internet or is the world world was always scary right like i I mean i've been watching Dahmer on netflix i can't even finish it it's so gross i haven't started it because everyone has that same reaction and i'm like why would i I barely made it to three episodes and i and i like i'm obsessed with the serial killer things i'm you know obviously psychology and mental health my my thesis in college was on serial killers it's intriguing right just i mean uh, you know it's the same reason like and i try to I'm a historian of sorts. Like I read a lot of books in the past. It's the same thing like the Holocaust or genocide or different things. I want to know like the worst of human nature so I can understand it better. Absolutely. Um, And I think that's what the obsession with serial killers is. Um, And so I watched Dahmer and I'm just like, oh my gosh. But that was the the 80s. Like Mm -hmm. there's the world was bad. It's just we didn't protect people because we didn't educate them about it. So yeah. Speaking of mental health. Yeah. (laughs) That's always been a problem that needs to be addressed in my opinion. Yeah. Um, this has been <laughs> fun. Real, it, it, it has been, it's been a roller emotional coaster. though, but, but good, but it's good. Like I don't want to have surface level conversations with people and I want to bring awareness to the things like you talk about and, and you are a storyteller and I think people can relate with you on so many different levels. Thank um, you. and so tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. She at, has a blue check at, mark. At, as we, as we just denounce. <laughs> Uh, social media. <laughs> Follow me and like me. Uh, Amber Theo one is um, Instagram because somebody stole Amber Theo Harrison. It took me forever to get it back, and I oh said forget God. it. And then I, I already had following. Yeah, um, and um, on Inst- on uh, Twitter, I'm Amber Theo Harris. Um, and you can also check all of my workout. Not all of my work. I work for so many different places, but. Um, if you're here in Vegas, I know this is a Vegas-based podcast. Uh, Raiders.com in the Raiders official YouTube channel uh, reruns all of our, all of my interviews, all of our shows. Um, it's really fun to watch. But you can also catch me on SiriusXM uh, Radio on NFL Radio and, and uh, Fantasy Sports Radio. So. Busy woman, I yes. really appreciate your time. And this has thanks been for having such me. Thanks cool for doing this kind of a podcast. Yeah, really awesome. You're a very intriguing woman, very powerful woman, and you're using oh. your power to to do good things. I appreciate that. Don't make me cry again. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Megan.